You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. And I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. It is August 26th, and I've got a great show for you this week. 26th of August. It is already almost September. August really, really flew by for me. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it was... I, it was like the man camp out headed out August, and then from then, I just transitioned to now. <laughs> like the end of August already. Uh, I, I mean, this summer, god damn, this summer's almost over. My kids are going back to school. It's a real transition period in, in the world. It, it was really great having my kids home throughout the summer, but it's going to be equally good having them back at school, able to focus on... I don't know, something other than Minecraft <laughs> for my boy. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going crazy with that game. And all of his friends, they like come over and they complain and whine super loud while they're playing it. It's it's really torture. I don't know if you have to deal with this, but you're lucky if you don't. Uh, absolute pain in the ass. And I, there's been like a lot of other things grating on my nerves as of late. For example, my dog learned how to escape our yard. Now, I have a very small Shih Tzu dog, and I have high fences around my entire property, and I, I have a rather yard, large backyard, so I never really thought she would, one, want to get out, or two, be able to get out. She is a small dog. But somehow she managed it. So my wife got a phone call from the police, and they said that they had, like, two teenage kids brought our dog in and uh, the dog was running around and so they saw the tag and they were not going to charge us if uh, they could drop it off with someone to watch the dog because I guess there's like a a fee I I don't know for them doing their job I'm not sure like we would be charged because our dog escaped our yard and someone brought him in so that warrants cost I don't understand the concept really uh, but it didn't matter because we didn't pay it, because they took the dog to our neighbor's house, and they love the dog. They have three very similar types of dogs as well that all get along and play, so that was very fortunate for us that they just didn't take the dog and, and run away or, or, you know, sell the dog or something like that. It was really nice. But it did get me thinking, how the hell is my dog getting out of my yard? And so I scoured every inch of the fence around the perimeter of my backyard, and I found some areas that she may have been able to get out of. And so I try to do that coaxing where I, I set the dog and I'm like, sit, stay. And then I run to the front of the yard. I'm like, come here, come here. And I'm making all these little kissy dog sounds and whistles and trying to get the dog to do exactly what it did earlier when no one else was here. And I thought I had fixed everything because she didn't come out. So I just sort of had to make a guess on how to fix this. I ended up digging a trench along my back fence <laughs> Filling up the base with cement, putting some fence going down into the ground so that she couldn't, like, use her body weight to push the fence out a little bit and then go down this little, like, sort of canal that the dogs on the other side of the property dug out. 
And we suspected that's how she was getting out initially. So I, I laid all that down and I covered it up and everything was fixed as far as I understood. And so uh, my wife went uh, to work the next day, came back, and the dog was in the front yard just sitting there, <laughs> ready to greet her. As she, you know, who knows how long she'd been there? Probably all day. But she had escaped still. Little escape artist, this little thing. <clears throat> So we racked our brains trying to figure out how she got out, and it turns out she can actually climb a fence. Like, not the entirety of the high fence, but we have a gate on both sides of the house uh, for the fence, and one side is sort of wrapped up with wire that I had apparently not done high enough. I mean, it was like three feet off the ground wrapped up, but she was climbing up those three feet and wiggling herself out of between the gate and the fence. I mean, it was this really, really small area that I had earlier tried to see if she would go through that she wouldn't go through. So I guess it was only when people aren't looking. <laughs> I don't know. It's like masturbation. <laughs> only when people aren't looking at me, I'll do it. That's it. You look at me, I get a little stage fright. It's a little weird. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a, a huge, huge issue. I was worried that someone was trying to steal my dog. I was worried that my neighbors were letting her out. It was it, just all of this guessing and rage uh, off of my guessing. <laughs> like I was like, I bet it was my neighbors. I bet they reached over the fence, they were playing with the dog, and then they left their fence over because there's no way that my dog could get out of my... You know, like, I have the perfect... I have the Alcatraz of yards. There is no possible way my dog is getting out. And yet, she did. <laughs> so I just laced up that fence a little bit higher and no problems. She cannot escape anymore. That was the simplest of fixes and the last. Of course, it's always the last, isn't it? I mean, you'd keep making fixes if it didn't fix the issue. So I guess that's a pointless statement. Yeah, also, our house is very old. And we are continually fixing it up and making improvements. And we've been focusing on the outside lately. But the inside is, is just as old and just as bad. Now, when we first bought the house, one of the selling points, which is very funny, was that it had a remodeled kitchen. What it didn't say was that it was a remodeled in 1973 kitchen. <laughs> I, there has to be a time limit. Like, if it's not in the last 10 years, it's not remodeled and you cannot list it as such. I mean, to say that a remodeled kitchen from the 70s is still a remodeled kitchen is is like saying that I'm a newborn because I was born in the 70s. It's retarded. You cannot say that. But they did, and it raised the price of the house a, a several thousand, I'm sure. But so, I mean, point being is that the, the kitchen is very old and the cupboards and cabinets are sort of one by one falling apart. It's, it's really... Like, everything is just crumbling. First my car, now my dog is getting out, and now my cabinets are crumbling. I don't know what's happening. Uh, so I, like, ran out to Home Depot, and I got some clamps and some glue, and so I've been doing that for the last couple days, so just putting everything back together. Oh, yeah, yeah, And, very excited about this, I siphoned over my Irish stout, which smells amazing. I am so excited to drink this in uh, <laughs> like six, seven weeks when it's actually ready. It's going to be so delicious. I cannot wait. It, it was like that smell, it just takes you back. 
when I when I was siphoning into the secondary today, I immediately was pushed back to the um, late '90s when I was in Germany, and we hit these Irish pubs, very delicious from Tap Guinness, and the stout just smelled like that that creamy dark delicious stout that I had over there. And it's weird that aroma can do that to you. It can just immediately transport you to another place in time. But, you know, grasp it and hold on when it does because it's it's a really magical thing. So I was sort of just huffing (laughs) my my beer this morning, just like, oh yeah, that's the stuff. (laughs) It was great. Um, Okay, well, how about I talk about the show? I'll do a little bit... um, of telling you about old Nick, and then we will get on with uh, the glory that is Nine Cents this week. Because, like I said, it is a really great show. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about Law of the Trapezoid. Now, this is an essay that Anton LaVey wrote in The Devil's Notebook. I'm going to bring it to you as sort of my own little spin on the way he presented it. An infernal informant, former Governor Charlie Crist. Here's why I'm backing Barack Obama. And Libertarian Legion stands ready to accept Torch from Paul. And the creature feature, I'm going to do something I haven't done before, and I'm going to give you a review about a place, an event. I went to Hobel Zoo this last week, and actually it was literally yesterday, and I'm going to talk to you about not only Hobel Zoo specifically, you know, sort of the the pros and cons, you know, like a review of it, but also zoos in general and, and the ideas of them. I think I think I can sort of uh, give you some interesting interesting perspective on that. And that's going to do it for the show. Uh, really quickly, oldnickmagazine.com, everyone. Go out there. Old Nick Magazine is a devilish uh, adult magazine. It contains reviews on music, on uh, literature, and it presents you with some very, very beautiful women wrapped in some amazing editorial and uh, fiction even. So if if you've ever, and I've been talking about this for a, a little over, I don't know what, two months now or something like this, because they, they hooked me up, uh, and I think I think Old Nick Magazine is, is one of the best, certainly the best that I'm aware of, but I'm going to say, I'm going to let me say one of the best adult magazines out there because of its focus, and because that focus is, is directed specifically at people like me. So that's why I'm bringing it to you every week and telling you about it because I think you will find uh, a lot of enjoyment, whether you're a man or a woman, within its cover. So check out oldnickmagazine.com. You can get the order your your print copy or you can just get the digital copy for a little less scrilla. It's definitely worth a look, oldnickmagazine.com. All right, let's go ahead and dive into The Devil's Advocate. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? They don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me. 
the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Law of the Trapezoid. Okay, this essay is can, can be found is can be found in the Devil's Notebook by Anton Lavey. If you don't own the Devil's Notebook, you really should. It is an amazing companion to the philosophy not only of Satanism, but it gives you great insight into Anton Lavey in his mind. And you know, one can make the argument that there there is no difference between Satanism and Anton Lavey's mind, but there are some amazing principles that he outlines uh, that that are very satanic within this. So so certainly check it out. I don't know if you can get it at a library if you don't want to drop the cash or if it's available even, which I'm sure it is. But uh, yeah, definitely check it out. The Devil's Notebook. I'm going to give you the first little article and then we'll just sort of uh, rap about this for a little bit. We all react to what we see. Just as sounds and odors influence our behavior, so do visual patterns and shapes. Some make us feel good, Others disturb us. Whether you like to admit it or not, the fear response is one of the most easily aroused. Since self-preservation is nature's highest law, fear motivates. Hence, we give our attention first to sensory impression. Hence, we give our attention first to sensory impressions that represent things that we once, far back in racial memory, feared. Fear is the prime mover. So he covers a couple different aspects of, of what fear means in this essay, but it's really centered around the idea of, of shapes and places. So, and that, that was kind of a huge jump I just made there. Fear is a reaction to unsettlement, to the unknown. Um, and what he's speaking to with shapes, for example, is that there are shapes, like the trapezoid, that are not complete-looking to us. Uneven lines or incomplete shapes. I mean, you look at a shape like a square, perfectly edged and closed. You look at a circle, very comfortable, round, it's like a big hug. <laughs> you look at a pyramid, uh, there's this, this, this sense of completion and majesty about it. You look at a trapezoid, it's like a pyramid with the head lopped off. It's not quite complete. And there's a lot of other shapes that are just slightly off and not quite complete. And something within us looks at those, and we may not overtly understand it, but in our subconscious, we are disturbed slightly by it. Now, Anton LaVey pays this theory off, with discussion about his in, uh, crime scene investigations uh, and in the places that the, that would happen, uh, like the tragedies, be it a suicide or a murder. And what he found is that you may have a, a room that seems rectangular, seems square and comfortable, but there might be uneven flooring tilting in a certain way. And, and his theory is that places like this 
don't necessarily inherently have power within themselves other than just being an odd shape, but it's our reaction to those shapes and to those uh, unperfect boundaries around us that set us into a a, a discorded motion. It upsets our psyche enough and over enough time will allow us to do things that we may have already been predispositioned to do. Um, violence, aggression, but uh, you know, it, it just sort of pushes us over that edge that our rational mind wouldn't normally allow us to move on. Uh, he brings up the idea that you know, whenever you think of uh, fairy tale castles, they have these perfect spires of triangles up at the top, but when you look at something like a haunted house, it's very much uneven. It's very much uncomfortable shape. These are, are, are very basic elements that are used to disrupt us. Artists create these specifically just to upset us. And the use of color, the use of uh, shape, and uh, brush strokes all come together and, and really evoke an emotional reaction in us. So it is his understanding of this, uh, this sort of reveal to him that he came up with the law of the trapezoid. And it is as thus. Spatial concepts were not only able to affect those who were involved in visual confrontations, but far more insidiously, other parties with whom a viewer came in contact. So not only if, if you were the viewer, for example, and you came upon a haunted house, were you upset by this and were you uh, really struck down emotionally from viewing it, but how you feel affects others that may not be with you at that moment when you go home and you're still a little frazzled. It rubs off on your spouse or your partner or your children or your roommates. It rubs off on your coworkers. Not understanding or not being aware that you can do things like this. Sharing your, your emotional energy with other people. Because of something that you simply saw. Because of a place you just randomly visited. It set you in this sort of motion of energy. Knowing that you can do that. Or knowing that it can affect you. Well, then, you can apply a little lesser magic here. See, if you're not aware of it, then it's like any fear, okay? Someone jumps out from behind a, a doorway and scares you. Boo! You react. Pure reaction. You don't really have a chance to capitalize on that. Um, once you're, you know, sort of, once you come to terms with your fear, then you can react it, either by smacking the person or running away or laughing or, or whatever your natural reaction would be there after you scream in terror. But if you know that they're around the corner, then you can plan how you're going to act when they jump out. And that's the same theory that Anton LaVey speaks to in this article. If you know of the law of the trapezoid, then when you visit these places, you can use it to feed you. Now, I, I always like to sort of tie together a lot of these concepts that, that Anton LaVey had, and I think one of them he specifically brings up is um, lycanthropic change and using areas 
to to sort of terrorize you to help get you in that bestial sense. Well, you can use the law of the trapezoid hands down as 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 a a, a primer to lycanthropic change. And he he literally suggests you do so in the book as well. But the knowing that it exists, knowing what it can do will allow you to find an appropriate area for that change, for, for that emotional change that you really have to be able to make. Or to lure others in, and you can feed off of their terror if you're aware of it. And it, it's really a simple thing to do. It, it, just being next to them and you being aware of, of what it is that is causing this emotional reaction and them not knowing you are literally a vampire sucking away their life energy in that moment. It's a lot of fun. Just be careful that you're always in control of it because you can sort of succumb to the, the excitement of it and become just another leech, another psychic vampire that, you know, it's really not a desire to be around. Law of the Trapezoid, being aware of it, is, is essential for any real lesser magic practitioner that's successful, but also just moving about the world. It's going to serve you tenfold. And you cannot blame... <laughs> you cannot use ignorance as an excuse now because you're aware of it. So I've given you a brief primer. You get out there. You read The Law of the Trapezoid by Anton LaVey in The Devil's Notebook and uh, educate yourself. Fantastic article. I really He goes into huge detail about film, about specific locations and people. So... Really, and and his own experience, and you, I, you know, me summing that up is not really going to do it justice. So go check it, read it yourself. Let's go ahead and move on to the infernal informant. Listen up, listen up, hey, Good news, and no devil. Bad news, else no heaven. Nothing to see. I'm your infernal informant. All right, this is Tampa Bay Times in partnership with Politico, former Governor Charlie Crist. Here's why I'm backing Barack Obama by Charlie Crist. And this is uh, Sunday, August 26. Hey. I've studied, admired, and gotten to know a lot of the leaders in my life. Across Florida, in Washington, and around the country, I've watched the failure of those who favor extreme rhetoric over sensible compromise. And I've seen how these, how those who never lose sight of solutions so their greatest successes. As America prepares to pick our president for the next four years, and as Florida prepares once again to play a decisive role, I'm confident that President Barack Obama is the right leader for our state and the nation. I applaud and share his vision of a future built by a strong and confident middle class in an economy that gives us the opportunity to reap prosperity through hard work and personal responsibility. It is a vision of the future proven right, by our history. We often remind ourselves to learn the lessons of the past, lest we risk repeating its mistakes. Yet nearly as often, our short-term memory fails us. Many have already forgotten how deep and daunting our shared crisis was in the winter of 2009, as President Obama was inaugurated. It was no ordinary challenge, and the President served as the nation's calm through a historically turbulent storm. The President's response was swift, smart, 
and far-sighted. He kept his compass pointed due north and relentlessly focused on saving jobs, creating more, and helping the many who felt trapped beneath the house of cards that had collapsed upon them. He knew we had to get people back to work as quick as possible, but he also knew the value of a recovery lies in its durability. Short-term healing had to be paired with an economy that would stay healthy over the long run, and he knew that happens best by investing in the right places. President Obama invested in our children's schools because he believes a good education is a necessity, not a luxury, if we're going to create an economy built to last. He supported more than 400,000 K-12 teacher jobs, and he's making college more affordable and making student loans, like the ones he took out, easier to pay back. He invested in our runways, railways, and roads. President Obama knows a reliable infrastructure that helps more people to work, uh, I'm sorry, helps move more people to work and helps businesses move goods to market is a foundation of growth. And the president invested in our retirement security by strengthening Medicare. The $716 billion in savings his opponents decry today extended the life of the program by nearly a decade and are making sure taxpayer dollars aren't wasted in excessive payments to insurance companies or fraud and abuse. His opponents would end the Medicare guarantee by creating a voucher that would raise seniors' costs by thousands of dollars and bankrupt the program. We have more work to do, more investments to make, and more waste to cut, but only one candidate in this race has proven a willingness to navigate a realistic path to prosperity. As Republicans gather in Tampa to nominate Mitt Romney, Americans can expect to hear tales of how President Obama has failed to work with the party or turn the economy around. But an element of their party is pitched so far to the extreme right on issues important to women, immigrants, seniors, and students that they've proven incapable of governing for the people. Look no further than the inclusion of the Aiken Amendment in the Republican Party platform, which bans abortion even for rape victims. The truth is that the party has failed to demonstrate the kind of leadership or seriousness voters deserve. Pundits looking to reduce something as big as a statewide election to a single photograph have blamed the result of my 2010 campaign for U.S. Senate and my greeting of President Obama. I didn't stand with our president because of what it could mean politically. I did it because uniting to recover from the worst financial crisis of our lifetimes was far more important than party affiliation. I stood with our nation's leader because it was the right move for my state. President Obama has a strong record of doing what is best for America and Florida, and he built it by spending more time worrying about what his decisions would mean for the people than for his political fortunes. That's what makes him the right leader for our times, and that's why I'm proud to stand with him today. And that was Last Modified August 26 at 12 a.m. Uh, by Charlie Crist. He was a former Republican governor of Florida and previously elected as a state senator, education commissioner, and attorney general. He currently is registered as no party affiliation. He wrote this column exclusively for the Tampa Bay Times, as you can tell by his voice speaking directly to the Florida people. So no matter what side you're on, no matter whether you hate Obama or not, if you are educated on what has actually transpired in the last four years... You have to agree that he is the most compromising president who 
gives less than two shits about his own political party. Because <laughs> he is pissed off every progressive person that put him into office. He is pissed off the majority of the Democratic people that put him into office and that he works with. And he pisses off the Republicans because he makes their proposals look good and then forces them to refuse them. He tries so hard to work with them that he actually is working against himself to do so. And they still, they still say he doesn't work with them. It's it's so unbelievable. I mean, you have to be ignorant to not think that he is the most reaching across the aisle president we've ever had, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, you can make the argument that um, um, Bill Clinton was really good at that. And I would argue that in his second term, yes, yeah, he was. (laughs) But nowhere near what Obama has done. He has literally gone not only to the lengths to ignore a lot of what he said he was going to do when he was elected... But he went against some of it because it was what he could get done with Republicans. And that was only after months of political debate, arguments, and a lot of, uh, a lot of mojo on his side. <laughs> Meaning, he lost a lot of his political um, uh, uh, power, you know, his leverage uh, in, in actually going so far to work with them, and they still badmouth him. They still talk shit about him because they just don't like him in office. And you have to worry, or I mean, I don't know about worrying, but you have to wonder why. If he's gone so far out from his political arena to meet them and conceded on virtually everything that they asked him to concede on, plus, why do they still not like him? I mean, it seems overly simplistic to say it's because of his race. And it seems comfortable to say because of his political party. But when he's abandoning his political party to go across the aisle so often and to such a personal detriment, you wonder, it can't be the political side of things. Is it as simple to say? And is it as real to say this because he's black? Certainly for some senators, absolutely, and congressmen. Absolutely. Uh, Racism is alive. I do not think it's as powerful as the media hypes it out to be, but it is still out there. And to say that it isn't is just putting on blinders. And it exists on all sides, not just white people against other people. I mean, racism is inherent in what it means to be American, from our very founding to our our, our earliest uh, cultural gatherings in cities. And, uh, you know, we work together to hate other people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if there is one legacy of America, it is racism. So, you know, we are certainly not post-racial just because we have a black president. And uh, one way to prove that, though I would argue it's probably the best way to prove that, uh, not because it's the easiest to point out, because of all forms of racism, I prefer this one. Uh, because politically, you can see it in the, the political opposition. Because it, it can't be the policies, because he's adopted and proposed more Republican policies than Democratic. So it's not the policies, unless it's just that they don't like they've proposed all of their policies. <laughs> in the, and it's, it's like you look at the political landscape and you wonder, do Republicans just, are they as, as ignorant as they 
seem? I mean, is it as obvious as that? I mean, they refuse. They refuse to work with anyone else. They go out and on the media and state that no matter what, they won't compromise. A Tea Party comes in power based on that premise alone. No compromising. It has to be our way or the highway. Individual rights. Damn everyone else. Man, America is one messed up place. <laughs> well, you have people like Charlie Chris who... I, I don't know anything about his policies. I haven't researched him. I haven't vetted him. But based on what he just wrote, the idea of moving past the party system to try to compromise for real solutions, solutions that could actually favor the majority of Americans and the future of America. Well, that's, in my humble opinion, the best way to go. And if that means Obama over Romney, for that reason alone, I would say yes. I have to say it's still early, so I, I, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to end up voting Obama. But I am certain I'm not going to vote Romney. I have to take a look at some of the other parties that are, are running presidential campaigns and, and really make my decision. And so, hey, you know what, with that, let's go ahead and move on to this next article, which is a little bit longer here. Ron Paul passing torch to a libertarian legion. Now, this is actually posted in the New York Times politics section, and this is uh, by John Harwood. Published, uh, I'm having a hard time speaking. Published uh, August 25th, Tampa, Florida. The future of what Ron Paul started rests with supporters like Ashley Ryan, who will attend Mr. Paul's final presidential campaign rally here with decidedly mixed feelings. Miss Ryan, a 21-year-old college student, will take over as Maine's national committee woman after sitting as Paul delegate at this week's Republican National Convention. But in credentials dispute, hard bargaining party leaders left Paul forces with only half the Maine delegates that they thought they had won this year, a blunt reminder of Mitt Romney's grip on the proceedings. It was a huge slap in the face, Miss Ryan said, though her though her unseated Maine colleagues can attend with guest passes furnished by the Iowa de delegation, she said. I was very disappointed. Yeah, Mr. Paul's supporters can celebrate achievements that an earlier generation of libertarians never tasted. Despite Tropical Storm Isaac, Mr. Paul is still scheduled to stage a valedictory rally on Sunday before an estimated 10,000 supporters at the University of South Florida's Sundome. Its speakers include Miss Ryan... We're planning, I'm sorry, including Miss Ryan, we're planning to send the Republican Party a message about their commitment to grow in influence as a 77-year-old Mr. Paul moves on. The libertarian movement has always boasted intellectual champions, but has gotten something new from Mr. Paul, the iconoclastic veteran House member from Texas, whose small government, low-tax, non-interventionist views found a new attention in the Tea Party era and served as the focus of a determined grassroots effort to shake up the Republican establishment. Over three separate presidential bids, Mr. Paul has given libertarians a leader from the world of electoral politics, a beachhead within the party, and a passionate, if desperate, army of activists. The one-time obstetrician had even bequeathed the movement a successor, his son, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. We used to say... Most people found libertarianism by reading Ayn Rand, 
Ayn Rand, said David Boas of the Cato Institute, a libertarian research organization in Washington. In the last five years, most people have found libertarianism by listening to Ron Paul. Brian Doherty, an editor in Reason magazine and a historian of the libertarian tradition, goes so far as to call the Texas Republican a miracle. Before Mr. Paul, the movement found many admirable traits in political figures like Barry M. Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, but also big disappointments. Even now, backers like Mrs. Ryan said the Paul campaign ended in a fizzle rather than a bang at the convention. In addition to disappointments over delegates, Mr. Paul, who finished second to Mitt Romney in New Hampshire's signature primary, will not get to address the party convention. That reflects both sides of the movement's new circumstances. To enhance its long-term viability amongst Republicans, Paul campaign leaders decide to cooperate with Romney forces for a smooth convention, while eschewing compromises that would have alienated core supporters even more. Mr. Paul, in an interview, said convention planners had offered him an opportunity to speak under two conditions, that he deliver remarks vetted by the Romney campaign, and that he give a full-fledged endorsement of Mitt Romney. He declined. It wasn't it wouldn't be my speech, Mr. Paul said. That would undo everything I've done in the last 30 years. I don't fully endorse him for president. Mr. Paul's campaign chairman, Jesse Benton, acknowledged the frustrations that the Paul high command had been forced to manage. Some true believers want to dress in black, stand on a hill and say, Smash the state, said Mr. Benton, who is married to one of Mr. Paul's granddaughters. But it's not our desire to have floor demonstrations. That would cost us a lot more than it would get us. Just eight years ago, it was fringy people in the John Birch Society who were espousing Mr. Paul's ideas for taking on the Federal Reserve System, Mr. Benton said. Now it's the Republican Party that has drafted a platform planking calling for auditing the central bank. The purity of the movement's principles has long left it in self-imposed isolation. The minimalist role it envisions for government repeals a vast majority of I'm sorry, repels a vast majority of Democrats. Its non-interventionist foreign policy and live-and-let-live social views repel most Republicans. The Pew Research Center's most recent study of groups within the electorate conducted last year categorized 10% of registered voters as libertarians. But even that relatively small group, said the center's president, Andrew Cohen, held even more moderate views on the role of government in foreign affairs than Mr. Paul. Still, Mr. Paul has managed to expand the movement's ranks. The two million votes he received in this year's Republican nominating contest were nearly five times the number he received as the Libertarian Party's presidential nominee in 88. His, he largely credits fortunate timing, the 2008 financial crisis, and growing fatigue of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq made some voters more receptive to his mes message on monetary and military policies. There's a lot of luck in politics, he said. Simple generational change could give the movement a boost in elections to come. Younger voters of all stripes display increasing tolerance on social issues like same-sex marriage. The fiscal conservatives among them will fit into the libertarian camp far more easily than older conservative Christian Republicans. In New Hampshire, for example, Mr. Paul drew himself votes from people under 45. I'm sorry, half his votes. <laughs> I'm having a real tough time here. Three-fourths of Mr. Romney's votes came from people 45 and older. Mr. Doherty, the author of a historian history of libertarianism called Radicals for Capitalism, credited Mr. Paul with normalizing a movement once derided as kooky. But he said the movement must remain aggressive to grow more rapidly and avoid being taken for granted in that way. In his view, Republicans have taken for granted the religious right. It can't be growth just by age attrition. 
he said. The young people have to start connecting with the older people. A further challenge is expanding the movement's support among women, who tend to express higher support for activists government than men do. The most promising avenue, Mr. Benton said, may be the anti-war stance that Mr. Paul has articulated. Balancing pragmatism and principle could prove tricky for Rand Paul, who Mr. Boas said sees himself as a potential presidential nominee. Senator Paul has shown a great commitment that his father to operating within Republican Party institutions. The foremost recent example, in June, he gave Mr. Romney the endorsement his father would not. There were a lot of people who were upset at the endorsement, said Mrs. Ryan, the main delegate. Rand's going to have a lot of work ahead of him to secure his base if he wants to be the next Liberty candidate. I have a few issues with the libertarian movement in general. I did really like Ron Paul, um, and I'm a little sad to see him, you know, sort of fade away from from politics. Um, though our understanding of America would be radically altered if a libertarian became president, if Ron Paul became president, for example. Radically altered. It really wouldn't be that terribly far from where the founding fathers actually started us. It's just that, really, America has evolved to this hyper-conservative, government-controlled, or or, or government-controlling, just manifestation of its people. It wasn't always supposed to be that way necessarily, and the Libertarian Party really goes to the Constitution and says, well, if it's not there, then we cannot do it. And I have a problem with that, because the Constitution was written a long time ago with, and and kept very vague, with literally no idea what was to come. So, I would make the argument that we live in a world that our founders would not be able to operate in. Um, they had one main enemy and a lot of corporate enemies. We have a lot of enemies, and, and yes, we made them, but we are literally surrounded. We cannot take an isolationist view, and that's really what the Libertarian Party wants to do. Um, I do agree with their conservative bents. I'm very much a fiscal conservative um how you know with caveats there <clears throat> in that I don't I'm not a corporatist I do not believe corporations are people and I do not believe that corporations should influence our political system and they do right now our entire capitalist system is based around that premise so you take that away and we may have serious serious uh, detrimental effects and I think that's what the Libertarian Party would also do. If you remove all regulation and allow business to operate, there's this idea that capitalism is this glorious thing that just, you know, weans out those unable to meet demand and brings and holds up those who are of power and authority and quality. And in the coloring books, that is how it works in Sunday morning cartoons. But what they don't take into account 
is that uh, there's price fixing and com- corporations work with each other to put down their competition. There, it, it's our, our capitalist system is like a reality TV show. It's like Survivor. You have the big guys binding together, making truces in order to tear out the small guys, get them voted off the island so that they have ultimate dominant control. And that's not capitalism <laughs> at all. Because more often than not, it's the big guys that are causing more harm to the people. And the idea of capitalism is that um, those most beneficial to the people will rise to the top. It doesn't really happen that way. Libertarians would sort of strip away regulation to allow the natural course of what they see capitalism, you know, the, the theory of capitalism uh, being successful. And then, uh, you know, we would be even even worse situation than we are right now. At least that's my opinion. So that's one of the reasons I, I don't think... And I do think that there are minorities in this world that, you know, the proper role of government is to protect its people. So let's use Satanism as an example. What would happen if you were an outed Satanist and suddenly there was no longer any protections for religious belief? And, I don't know, you're in a very Christian area where there's no such thing as hate crimes and there was no punishment for Christian abuse of uh, violence and uh, spreading their vile beliefs. You would end up in a very Islamic-like worldview. You know, we would suffer at the hands of the, the majority of Christians, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> it took me a long time to get there. Uh, yeah, I, I think there would be a violent reaction, because Christians are stupid, and when they don't understand something, they try to hit it. And yes, many individual Satanists can protect themselves individually, but six on one is too much for anyone. So I think you're getting what I'm trying to say here. There are protections for minorities that our government provides. That if you just allowed businesses to operate as they are, if you allowed people to operate as they are without um, government sort of laying a foundation then you would have some serious issues with people like uh, Christians if you're a Satanist. And that spreads across to any, you know, vast minority group. Uh, there's, there's serious implications in doing that. Now, the Libertarian Party does not believe in stripping out the rights. You know, they do not believe in government telling them they can or cannot do anything, but they also think that there should be no movement to violence. So it's not like they're enabling violence, per se, by stripping out regulations protecting minorities, or laws protecting minorities. But by stripping away those laws, by giving unhindered access, what about rejecting one's business? is it, is it so crazy to think that if you're in a religious area that the community would ostracize you? You wouldn't be able to patronize a grocery store, a gas station. If all businesses were allowed to discriminate on who really used their service, then some minorities 
in some parts of our country would suffer greatly. That is a world that a libertarian president, if given carte blanche, would allow. And I certainly believe that you can obviously move if you do not like the area that you live in, and I encourage people to do so. Move to a place that you are comfortable, where you can express yourself. But with our current legal system, that's America. So why restrict it now? Why step back to the 50s when we can just live as we are now? So that's another reason I'm not really into the libertarian thing. And I'm not really trying to knock down libertarians in this article. I just I, I wanted to put out there that I, I really appreciated Ron Paul's perspectives on a lot of things, certainly on the banking system in the Federal Reserve. And it's sad to see him go, because with, with him gone, I would be shocked to see a powerful political figure rise up and take on the libertarian mantle and, and move it into a viable, a viable position that voters could vote on. So anyway, you know that, that's going to be that. Let's go ahead and uh, take a short break, and then we'll move on into the creature feature. Oh, God. No. Just me. <laughs> Know that after the heart stops beating, the brain can function for well over seven minutes. We got six more minutes to play. <coughs> Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome to Creature Feature. Alright, this is a little weird because I've never reviewed a place before, but I'm going to talk about Hogel Zoo. Hogel Zoo is a zoo in Utah. It is, well, it, it's the zoo in Utah. <laughs> and as far as zoos go, I guess it's not that bad. I'll get into that in a second. But my, my parents wanted to, you know, take me and my kids out and, you know, just sort of do something outside. Because usually when we visit, it's just like at a house, you know, at our house or at their house, and we're just sort of sitting around doing nothing. So it's nice to be able to go out and do things. Uh, we get there initially, perfect parking, even though it's super busy. And immediately I notice, the zoo is like crack for pregnant Mormon women. It, there are more pregnant women in a 300-yard <laughs> area than uh, anywhere else in the entire state. <laughs> at the zoo. It is crazy. There were everywhere I turned there was a pregnant woman. And it was a hot day too. I don't I don't know what it is about going to the zoo. I guess you're limited with what you can do for entertainment if you're Mormon because they filter their media ridiculously. Ironically, watching animals tear like flesh from bone on TV is a bad thing, but seeing it at the zoo is a good thing. I, I don't really understand that notion, but Point being, there was a lot of pregnant women. So I, I found myself incredulously staring at tons of pregnant women, probably looking like a total creep. I wasn't thinking anything weird and sexual. I was just shocked that there were so goddamn many of them everywhere. Everywhere you turn. Now, obviously, it's going to draw people because, you know, they want their kids to see different types of animals and stuff like that. And, yeah, it's great and all. Um, but the, the first thing you run into is, one, the guys are either um, super protective, so if you're looking at their women, they 
like sort of aggressively like step toward you or say, you know, like face you like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? This is my bitch. Or <laughs> they just cower and turn their heads away. It's weird. I love the people watch. The zoo is a very, very good place for it because I don't think there, we have a lot of weird people in this world. Like, and I don't mean like personality weird. I mean looking weird. There's a lot of ugly people. And I thought Utah was supposed to be one of the per capita... I'm, I'm totally pulling this out of my ass. Per capita, the better-looking states. Because, you know, it, it's a much more healthy and active lifestyle. Even though it's very much on drugs here. The women, particularly Mormon. Um, but the, it's a very uh, outdoor, active lifestyle state. I mean, we have skiing, mountain biking... Uh, even the Great Salt Lake is amazing boating. We have a lot of reserves and um, a lot of lakes, actually, in a very small area. And we're not far from some really key ones as well. Uh, they're big draws. So, I mean, for the outdoor enthusiast, Utah is, is great. And you would think that because of that, there would be a lot of healthier people, a lot more healthier people. But they all must have been avoiding the zoo when I went because all I saw aside from the pregnant women were morbidly obese people I mean when when we first got there my parents were like hey do you want to get a stroller for your daughter and my daughter's young but no she can walk if she gets too tired she will tell us but you don't start from a place of saying get in this wheelchair or I'm sorry get in this stroller and we're going to push you around no start from a position of you're going to walk like everyone else, and then if you're tired, I'll help you out for a little bit, but you need to stand on your own two feet. Like, we're just walking around a zoo. It's not that big of a deal. But we saw parents pushing, like, six and seven and ten-year-olds. Like, grown kids being pushed around in the strollers because they were too tired to walk. What is wrong? And what does that say about our culture, that we're allowing our kids... When I was growing... Okay, this... I'm going to get to the old man inside of me here. When I was a kid, we would play kick the can outside for hours. We'd play tag. We would play baseball. We would... Point is that we were outside doing things. Now, now, everyone's inside playing video games and they complain when they have to have the sun beat down on their skin. It, it's so insane. And, and then when they finally do go out to like the zoo, they just have them sit on their asses while their parents push them around. You are enabling lazy people, parents. Come on. Yeah, I'll get to the zoo eventually, I promise. <laughs> okay, so we get in there, and the first thing that sort of greets you is this train, and we want to do a train ride. It's supposed to take you around. And the, the idea of a train ride, as I understand it at a theme park, is that you get on this mini train, it takes you around a track, and you see animals. Right? I mean, that, that's the whole idea. In this Hogel Zoo's one, we get on a train and we ride around. The first thing we see, not, not, not any animals. We saw mannequins with mine carts, and the lady's like, "To your left, you will see old miners like those that found many, many like mine, like dummies." We are looking at. We are. We went to a zoo so that we could look at dummies in this <laughs> mining made-up diorama. 
unbelievable. And then we go through this little tunnel, and she's like, still no animals. Go through this little tunnel. Everyone scream as you're going through the tunnel. And we literally see the other side of the tunnel as we start to enter the tunnel. So it's not like there's this period of darkness, which is scary, which would be the reason to scream, even if it's just for fun. It's just this, like, short little tube that we go through. And so everyone's like, ah, oh, (laughs) as they happen to. I mean, you could be in one car in the tunnel and the car behind you is out and by the time that car gets in the tunnel you are out of it again it's that short I'm exaggerating slightly but still it's really short then we finally get to see animals and what are the animals doing and this is going to bring me to the point of a zoo that I'm not entirely sure I understand the concept of a zoo okay this is Adam's concepts concept of a zoo bring the wild to the people that's what a zoo is. It brings exotic animals that you're not going to see otherwise and, and try to fake a little habitat for them so that they're interacting with that environment and uh, you go and see them active and moving around and everything. But what you end up seeing at a zoo is animals laying down if you can see them at all. They build these sets, these little environments for these animals to get into where they are capable of literally hiding from view. From everyone! So you have people, like, sticking their face up against the side of the glass, looking down and looking up, trying to see where these damn animals are, and all the animals want to do is hide from all the ridiculous humans staring at them and tapping the glass, so they go to the other side of the diorama in the hidden place, and they're not there at all! So you pay a lot of money to come in and see sleeping animals or hidden animals, so there's a little sign plaque up there saying, this is the animal, and this is what the animal does. This is the habitat. That's what you get. But guess what? You can get that from a book. Yeah, they still exist. Or you can actually see a video of it on YouTube at home or nature shows on public access channels or any nature show. Disney put out some really great uh, just sort of like Disney's Oceans, for example, where you just see you know wildlife in his natural habitat, on the big screen. I don't know. Is there something better about going to a zoo and trying to see it? And then you can smell the animals, and that's that's not the best of smells. Just saying. I mean, I think the zoo is highly overrated. It, I, and, and it's sort of the, 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 the struggle with animal lovers, is that, one, you want to see and appreciate the animals, so you have a zoo. But then you want to make sure the animals are taken care of, and they're given the best luxury and comfort as possible. But it's never quite as much as they would have in the wild, but it's also super safe, and so the animals aren't really acting like they would normally act. I mean, there's something about the wild being wild. There's not a big plastic glass (laughs) between you and the animals, and they can go eat each other if they want to go eat each other, and then you end up with retarded behaviors, like, like gorillas sitting right in front of the glass, pooping, grabbing it, and eating it, and watching the reaction of the people. So is it us looking at the animals, or is it the animals just looking at us? Like, are we the zoo for the animals? They're, they're just allowed to sit down and relax? Like, hey, 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 George, check this, check this shit. I'm gonna watch, I'm gonna make every single one of those human beings jump. Watch. Poops. Chomp. Ah! Everyone jumps back. Oh, it's so gross, it's so funny, and they're peeing, and everyone's all happy, and they're, like, beaten off in front of everyone. I, I I cannot imagine 
<laughs> in any scenario, that a zoo is a good environment for an animal. Uh, we, we're not doing them any service. I mean, once you put them in a zoo environment, you have to keep them there. There's no way that you're going to be able to just send them back into the wild and have them be completely unshattered. <laughs> They're going to be sitting there, where's my, where's my, where's my, my food? Someone's supposed to bring me a steak. The sun is right above me. I need a steak. Where's my human bringing me my steak? You know, stuff like that. Uh, anyway, so we finally see some animals that are laying down, or we can see hints of the fur of animals over logs. Yeah, great job, environmentalists who have built these cages. I really appreciate you hiding the animals that I paid you to see from me. It's very great. Um, we get done with this super short train ride, and we decide to walk around, and what you find is that a zoo is in perpetual motion of either repairs, improvements, or switching out exhibits. And so you never see what you want to see because there's something else happening. Like, we want to see the giraffes, but they're at this very far end, and it was closed off. So yes, we could have walked all the way down in the blistering sun and saw a giraffe standing still and then had to walk all the way back to see anything else, or we could have just walked in this sort of loop and seen every other animal without having to do that extra little jaunt. So we didn't see the the giraffes, but we saw everything else, uh, pretty much. I mean, I, I didn't see the wolves either, but other than that, I think I saw everything else. We did this little bird show, and I don't know if you've been into one of these, but the, the big draw for the bird show, which is retarded in my opinion, but the big draw for the bird show is that the birds swoop right over your head. This happens in the real world, and generally is followed by them pooping on you. So I'm not a big fan of birds swooping right by my head. It is nice to see these really rare and really large birds that they were showing us. It was very exciting. But they had song, you know, like music from like U2 or, or the theme of Indiana Jones and you know all this weird music while these birds were really swooping and diving. So the, the whole, the entire activity was one bird going from one end, swooping to the other, and that sort of reoccurred every, you know, for for 20 minutes of different types of birds. That was really it. And then if you donated, you could take pictures with the birds, with the person holding the bird. So we did that because we're monkeys. <laughs> we just do what everyone else does. It was horrible. And uh, so, yeah, the bird show was a huge bust. And here's another thing that really surprises me. when When you train a bird to do something, and then it doesn't do that, and then you just sort of stand there like, I can't believe, as a trainer, I can't believe it didn't do what I said. I can't believe this wild animal did not bend to my every whim at every moment. <laughs> you know? I mean, one of these falcons like flew up in a tree, and we sat there for nearly seven or eight minutes just watching them trying to get the bird out of the tree, doing this stupid little sign language gesture that the bird is supposed to obey and come back to him. But this bird was just like, no, fuck you. Not going to happen. Uh-uh. So that, the bird show was just a ridiculous exercise in patience. Uh, really retarded. I can just go in my backyard and watch the birds swoop from each of my trees or throw down some freaking bird seed and see them up close. Saw my birds. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why that's exciting. And then they have something like the carousel, which is just like a merry-go-round with animals on poles that go up and down in a big circle. And my son and my daughter and mom and wife are on this, doing this in a big circle. And I'm just... 
looking at, like, this is the most unexciting activity one can do at any amusement park. But when it's at a zoo, it's exciting. Like, it's, it's the, the draw. Like, ooh, let's go on the carousel. I can sit on a plastic monkey. Woohoo! So it was retarded. So the, I, I have a hard time with the notion of the zoo because it's not, it's not doing service to the animals. And it's not doing service to the people who want to see the animals because you don't get to see the animals. Or if you do, they look sick, or they don't move, or they don't do anything at all. The entire saving grace of this entire day was the polar bear exhibit. This polar bear was like climbing up to the glass where all the kids were having their hands, putting his gigantic polar bear paws paws on the glass, and pushing himself off, just swimming back and forth. He did that all day. And that was fun for five minutes, because, uh, you know, for like three minutes, actually. Um, because, you know, he was doing something, and you could actually see him. He was alive, unless it was a mechanical one, which was actually entirely possible, <laughs> because he was doing the same motion all day long. Um, but, yeah, the, the zoo is a bust. Hogel Zoo, okay, I guess if you are an animal lover, obsessive animal lover, and you do not mind the confines of a zoo to see the animals, or how shitty the animals look in the confines of a zoo. If you don't mind seeing that, then check it out, Hogel Zoo. For me, I could live my entire life and never go to it again and be very happy. Like, I, I did not gain any insight out of visiting it. I, and it's not the first time I've been there, so maybe that's coloring my opinion. I didn't learn anything new about animals by going there. I just got frustrated and people watched. And maybe that's enough. You know, maybe, maybe that and the interaction I had with the wasp fending it off of my lunch was enough to justify the cost. I don't know. <laughs> I don't suggest you go check it out. That's Hogel Zoo. Uh, so, you know what? That's going to do it for another show. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're now also on Last.fm. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching 9 Cents, and if you do, don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you would like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, hail Satan, fuck the Satan.